Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxshot podcast. Ian here. I've been away for a couple of weeks um, since my last episode featuring a really fascinating investigation into the attempted murder of... Vicky Chilliers by her now ex-husband, currently incarcerated for a very long time. Emile Chilliers really enjoyed that chat with Paul. And um, yeah, I'm going to reduce the number of interviews probably to one every two or three weeks. I'll be completely honest with you, though trying to maintain the weekly um, tempo of episodes was just too much. It was stressing me out. Um, and particularly... Uh, and this is not weeping violins, just uh, sharing this with you. I don't get paid a penny for this podcast, never have done. And uh, I've just done it for my own enjoyment and hopefully yours as well. So uh, I have toyed with the idea of, of uh, I did do some um, advertising of the company I'm working for recently, but I'll be honest, that wasn't terribly successful. And uh, I'll talk a little about some of the frustrations of tech startups um maybe at some point but yeah uh so yeah i, I didn't i haven't got paid anything for it uh, it takes quite a lot, of, a lot quite a lot of time particularly getting the guests um teed up in the first place that can be quite tricky organizing diaries and um uh, some people can be uh, quite uh tricky to get hold of and responding to emails and all of that so i just thought you know what um, I'm going to just reduce the frequency and um, hopefully uh, without any compromise to quality. So this week I thought it would be interesting to do a little bit of a review of a number of stories that have hit the headlines recently about policing, just to get my thoughts on all of that stuff. Uh, caveated with it's just my opinion, but it's an opinion which I I uh, believe is based on many years experience and also uh, based on the very frequent emails and messages that I get from people who listen to the podcast I I think I'm pretty much on the right track really because it seems to resonate with what a lot of other people out there think uh, and many of those people are still serving and feel uh, that it's impossible for them to uh, speak honestly about uh, their experiences. So, in a in a sort of a way, I'm, I'm I suppose I'm I'm the voice of other people who who haven't got the freedom to speak that I have. So, um, first issue is a brilliant story in the uh, newspapers and um, news media today that uh, Sir Mark Riley has made a decision that from the 31st of August, I believe, the Met will no longer attend mental health, uh, calls for mental health issues unless 
there is an imminent threat to life, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. And I'm so pleased and really bold decision. My God. I mean, you've really got to have an absolute cast iron um, commitment to your organization and your staff, particularly the welfare of your staff. And uh, I've got no doubt whatsoever that that decision is going to result in some really difficult conversations at a strategic level of the Met, some very difficult conversations with uh, NHS and mental health partners on local command units, and also some extremely difficult um, conversations between control room staff, particularly control room supervisors, and either men members of the public or partners who ring up to report these issues, because uh, it is a huge, huge uh, volume of time that the police are spending on these issues. So I've made no secret of my frustration around this issue over many years. Uh, when I left the service in 2019, I would say that we would have had typically in the West Midlands Police um, probably a couple of dozen officers every moment of every day, at least a couple of dozen, if not more, sat with mental health patients either in hospital or in cell blocks doing constant watches, which does a number of things and that so I'm going to go through the reasons why I believe this is such a good decision that he's made and I put that I put that out on LinkedIn this morning saying you know brilliant decision well done it's going to be music to the ears of frontline officers all over the country because I'm really hopeful that where the Met leads on this other forces will follow um, so the first reason why uh, the police shouldn't be doing this is because, quite simply, it's not their job. Uh, it never has been their job. Uh, they're not trained to do it. Um, and it has fallen into the lap of policing through uh, a combination of probably lack of resources for the mental health services themselves. And that means that uh, this decision by the Met is going to force the hand of those who um, commission services for the mental health teams to increase their resources and funding, which is probably long overdue. And frankly, the police picking up the slack has just been putting a sticking plaster over a broken service. And uh, that has actually not been beneficial either to the police or to uh, people who are experiencing mental health crisis in the community because the poli a police officer or a police cell, I would suggest, is the very last uh, resource that we should be putting uh, people of that nature uh, into contact with. Um, so I also believe that this puts uh, the patient and also police officers themselves at very great risk uh, on the basis, again, as I say, that the police are not trained to do this. Um, and whilst I'm sure, well, I know they do, I know they, they do a very good job in terms of muddling their way through, but that's exactly what they do. They muddle their way through. 
and it would not be acceptable in any other uh, domain for someone to muddle their way through such a sensitive and complex issue. Uh, if you look at uh, deaths in custody over many years, either that's police contact deaths, i.e. someone dies as, a, as, a, uh, as part and parcel of police involvement in incidents, they either die there and then or they die later on. So that would be a, we would class that as a police contact death or a death in police custody. Um, I haven't got any figures for this, but I would hazard a guess that the vast majority of them involve people with mental health issues and or serious drug and alcohol issues. And, and what that does, it puts police officers in literally a no-win situation because they're having to try and deal with someone who is very volatile, potentially violent, uh, not behaving rationally and and what that then happens is when something goes wrong, then guess what? The police get blamed when actually they should never have been in that situation in the first place. All of that stuff also comes at a massive cost, uh, cost to the taxpayer. Um, the resources uh, required to manage all of these issues are, are very significant and uh, some of the uh, some of the estimates around the amount of time that police officers now routinely spend dealing with something related to mental health is somewhere between 20 and 40% of their time. So that's a huge cost. And all of that time uh, results in people who expect the police to be doing the things that they want them to do, i.e. deal with crime and disorder in the community. That means victims get a crap service. Uh, and that is just not acceptable. It's, uh, I wouldn't be very happy if I was a victim of crime uh, where I live and uh, and find out that I was going to get next to nothing uh, or a terrible service purely on the basis that the police just didn't have the resources to give, to give me the investigative um, support that I, that I deserved and needed. Um, I also get loads and loads of messages from police officers who are either thinking of resigning or have resigned in complete frustration. And many of these are officers who are quite young in service, they've maybe only done two or three years service. And the typical thing that they say to me is this, they say, I have always wanted, I always wanted to be a police officer. I was really excited when I got accepted to join the police, um, but the job is not the job that I thought I was signing up to. I've spent so much of my time sat in doing constant watches at hospital or in cell blocks and that is not the job that I signed up to do. I want to be a detective or I want to deal with crime and criminals. I want to protect the public. I do not want to be doing that and because I was spending um, you know, huge amounts of my time doing that I've decided to leave and I think that's such a waste of talent. It's a waste of uh, resources having to recruit and train those people. I've got a very good friend, um, Delphine, who uh, listens to the podcast from time to time. Hi, Delphine. Um, she uh, resigned from the police and she was really, really good. Um, done loads and loads of courses, um, had her eyes sort of set on potentially being a firearms officer. She, she, was, she was a great sort of female role model. Um, 
and she left because she was fed up with doing constant watches. Um, and I don't blame her, quite honestly. Um, so yeah, so uh, it is going to cause a massive kerfuffle. Uh, partners, but the reality is partners have sat on their hands on this issue for far too long. And, uh, and police chiefs across the country have been far too weak in failing to push back and say, right, enough is enough. And, uh, you know, this isn't, hasn't happened overnight. This has been going on for many, many years now. And I can remember um, going to one of these dreadful um, chief constables away days that uh, forces have, and uh, ours was no different. And uh, any chief constables listening to this, for God's sake, um, if you have these away days where you invite every officer of the rank of chief inspector up to chief superintendent. Firstly, I would say, if you're not actually going to listen to anything that your staff actually say and give you the feedback uh, from their staff around what you're doing, then don't have these bloody uh, away days. Just don't have them because they're a waste of time and uh, actually just create huge amounts of cynicism um, and I can remember on many of these awful um, you know away days that we would have as the SLTs of the West Mids they would typically involve some high overpaid um, police staff members of some change or business transformation unit standing up and lecturing us all on things that had almost nothing to do with keeping the public safe and uh, was symptomatic of what seemed to be going on across the police service uh, during the last sort of 10 to 15 years in that ever so gradually uh, senior officers were sort of sidelined effectively and not listened to and the only people who seem to get listened to are police staff, civilian managers, senior managers who had been sort of parachuted in from some other um, realm whether it's the private sector or public sector but the common denominator with all of them was that they knew absolutely nothing about policing and then, surprise, surprise, everything goes to ratchet, doesn't it? So, um, sorry, that was a, a bit of a, a bit of a rant there. But uh, the point I was going to make was, it reminds me of going to one of these awful away days, and uh, the theme for the day was around the safeguarding agenda whereby, uh, and by that I mean that was everything to do with uh, child abuse, domestic abuse, vulnerable adult abuse, mental health, etc, uh, etc. Et and this was at a time when there was a growing sense across the organisation amongst practitioners that the so-called vulnerability agenda was out of control and that uh, we were losing 
our ability to deal with what the public expect us to be dealing with, i.e. crime and disorder. And, and I made the point, uh, I asked the question sort of diplomatically of the chief, um, do you think that there's a risk here that, it was more of a rhetorical question, I suppose, do you think that there's a risk here that we're just going too far down the road of vulnerability and now we're sending a message to staff in control rooms that anything that even has the slightest sniff of vulnerability and risk is going to get a police um, resource. Yet, victims of crime seem to be getting very little. And I was politely told to shut up, really. And, um, and I just thought, well, there you go. That's what you get when you stop listening to your staff, isn't it? But um, it's been really interesting uh, staying on the second, the second sort of story at that I want to just touch on. It's been really interesting that the, the West Midlands now is a new chief constable, Craig Guilford. And he has added his voice to the uh, increasing demands from other police chiefs, particularly Sir Mark Riley, again, ma massive respect to him, for challenging uh, the status quo around the crime, the, the work uh, of the Crime Prosecution Service, the way that the Crime Prosecution Service works. So anyone who's listening to this uh, who doesn't work in policing, um, the Crime Prosecution Service has been around for a very, very long time. I mean, I don't know what, over 30 years. But ever so gradually, over about the last 10 to 15 years, the decision-making ability of the police uh, to decide who gets charged with what has uh, been eroded to the point now that they can't basically decide to charge anyone with anything other than the most trivial of matters like drunk and disorderly or something like that. Any sort of crime that requires a charging decision has to be referred to the Crime Prosecution Service. So not only has the decision-making ability been taken away from the police over the years, um, which leads to uh, a lot of frustration uh, and a lot of bureaucracy, unnecessary bureaucracy. The processes for getting that decision have become more and more bureaucratic and time-consuming. And it's now the case that uh, the Crime Prosecution Service will not give the authority to charge any sort of sort of semi-serious offence without a full file being prepared they call it a court ready file or a trial ready file so basically the officer has to has to treat the case as if it's going to going to code court uh, the next day or in not, not the next day but maybe in two or three weeks time which means they have to do every single piece of work get every single statement every single piece of forensic evidence all packaged up as if it's going to go to court before the crime prosecution service will even authorize a charge which is insane by any definition and is and leads to a huge amount of wasted time um so uh so mark riley and Craig Guilford and others have 
basically uh, called uh, the kind of said two things really. One is that uh, the Crown Prosecution Service should allow the police to to authorise charges for, you know, probably most offences, maybe apart from the most serious offences. Um, and the other thing that they've asked for is for them to uh, be more ambitious about the cases that they do decide to charge because statistics from the CPS themselves show that of all of the cases that they prosecute, they end up with an 80% conviction rate, which, you know, depends. If, if, you're, if you're the director of public prosecutions, you'll probably spin that to the media and say, look how brilliant we are. We, we, we managed to get convictions in 80% of all cases. Well, well, actually, that's a really great example of how statistics hide the, the truth in that that means that they will only be taking on those cases that they feel really, really confident that they're going to get a conviction at the end of the day. And that means it's going to be the easier, less complicated cases that they take on. So anything that is uh, difficult or challenging, um, they will not touch it. And the message that that then sends out, of course, to victims is that, and it's generally the police who get blamed then, it's not the crime prosecution service who get blamed, it's the victim. It's the police who have to go and speak to the victim and explain to them why it is that, that they're not going to be getting a charge or their matter isn't going to be taken to court. It's not the CPS who have to have those difficult conversations generally. Um, so yeah, so I really, really take my hat off to um, Sir Mark and uh, Mr Guilford uh, and those other chiefs who have also called for that to happen. Uh, well done you. So we shall watch that one with uh, with some interest. Um, the next little story I wanted to deal with was the, uh, again, another sign of, I believe, the police service turning a corner from a very, very, very difficult decade. And uh, Stephen Watson, the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester, has really, really got the bit between his teeth in terms of driving up standards around crime investigation and detections. And um, it really kind of made me roll my eyes into the top of my head because, as usual, uh, the police just cannot win with all of this stuff because there was a Channel 4 News article the other day talking about how outrageous it was that Greater Manchester Police were arresting so many people. And I was saying, oh my God, make your bloody mind up. It's like one minute uh, the police are uh, the bad people because they're not arresting enough people and bringing enough people to justice and then when you get a chief constable who decides enough is enough and we're actually going to do the job that, that the public expect us to do and start arresting a lot more people and driving up the prosecution rates then of course you get exactly the same people in this case Channel 4 News who have got a long track record of being quite hostile to policing uh, they are like the guardian of the TV. 
Guardian newspaper of the TV, um, they will be unhappy about that as well, won't they? Um, so in terms of what have they done? Well, they've doubled the arrest rate um, and they've driven up charges and summonses by 42% in 12 months, which is a 50% rise, which I think is a phenomenal achievement. And uh, there is uh, a suggestion that some of the officers themselves in Greater Manchester Police are unhappy about what they describe as a a uh, intolerable pressure to increase the arrest rate. Uh, now, you know, I don't know if anybody is listening from Greater Manchester Police who would put themselves in that category. I would probably say, get a grip. I'd say this is the job that you actually joined. Um, the reality is, I don't know what sort of service, uh, what sort of length of service the people who are saying things like that have. I suspect they're quite young in service um, because uh, this is how policing was done uh, for a very long time. And I remember a long, long period of time, in fact, probably at least two thirds of my service, where that was just a reality, that there was a, a very significant expectation that officers would go out and uh, deal robustly with crime and disorder. And if somebody needed to be arrested, uh, they got arrested and they were brought into custody uh, very, very quickly. And if they if they weren't, uh, particularly if it was for a certain type of crime, whether a particularly violent crime or acquisitive crime, um, th there would be some very difficult questions asked of you personally uh, or that person's sergeant uh, in the morning tasking meetings. And that's, in my view, exactly as it should be. Um, so I do think people probably need to get with the programme. They've probably been, um, you know, doing a very weird version of policing for the last maybe five to ten years that that actually hasn't been working. Uh, no one's been happy with it. The public aren't happy with it. The media, the politicians, no one is happy with the way policing has been done for the last 10 or 15 years. So well done to uh, Stephen Watson. Uh, 100% the right thing to be doing. Of course, you're going to get people who are going to be unhappy with that because God forbid they might actually have to do some work. So um, yeah, keep it up as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I'm feisty today, aren't I? Um, yeah, just a couple more things really. Uh, the first one is this story that was in the BBC News last week where they've released, they've done a freedom of information request to uh, most of the NHS trusts across the country, England, Wales anyway. And it turns out that between 2017 and 2022, 4,000 NHS staff were alleged to have committed crimes and abuse, particularly of a sexual nature, towards staff and patients with only 576 facing disciplinary action. So I appreciate that that's a, that statistic, uh, there's gonna be all sorts of detail within that statistic, which makes it, uh, you know, you, you would need to, you could probably write a, a PhD thesis on, on, on those 4,000 cases and trying to unpick exactly what was going on. But, uh, and I'm obviously not gonna do that. My point is that, uh, 
if you look at the shit that the police have had to put up with around the activities of people like Wayne Cousins and David Carrick um, and uh, some of the bad news stories around abuse of authority, etc., etc., whilst I don't for one moment um, take any pleasure in those bad news stories around policing, this NHS matter just goes to show that this is just what sadly um, frequently happens in large organisations. And I actually don't think that the police is any different to any other large public organisation. And I think if you were to uh, delve into almost any other large organisation, you will probably find a very, very similar story, regardless of whether it's in the public sector or the private sector. So I just think it's really interesting that the media tend to fixate so much on bad behaviour by policing, but you hear almost nothing about bad behaviour in, in other organisations, which proves that policing gets special treatment from the media. Um, I mean, that was that was one story, that, that story of the 4,000 NHS staff uh, having committed recordable crimes uh, was on the BBC website for one day and there was nothing heard about that um, in the intervening days and weeks after. So, yeah, make of that what you will, I suppose. And the final thing, and I'll just stop for a... A slurp of tea is um, this. It's really interesting how the police degree program seems to be on the wane. I think the number of forces now who are, um, if not abandoning it, certainly opening up alternative routes into policing um, is really interesting and, uh, in my view, long overdue. And I know that that has been a very divisive subject uh, in policing and I know that it um, you, you get on one hand one side of the fence you get uh, those arguing that it's an absolutely essential um, means of professionalizing policing uh, I've got to say generally the people who make that argument are the people who, who earn their salary delivering those courses um, and then on the other hand you have I suppose people like me saying um, whilst I was a graduate myself, I don't actually think that being a graduate was any help to me whatsoever in policing. If anything, it was probably a hindrance. Um, and most of the very best police officers that I worked with over the years uh, were not graduates and having had a degree would not have made them better police officers. So, yeah, again, watch that one with uh, great interest to see how it all pans out. Right, well, that's it, and um, looking forward to speaking to you again. Uh, I'm going to be uh, coming back in another week or 10 days with a an interview uh, in the next episode. You'll have to wait and see who that is. All right, you take care. Bye. <laughs>
But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>